You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of Nightmare Alley. I will ask you simple questions. You will answer in short sentences only what you believe to be absolute truth. Absolute truth. I can do that. Now, brief as you can, what is your name? Stanton Carlisle. Are you a true medium? Yes, I am. Mr. Carlyle? Doctor, how about that? Please lay down. Can you read minds? Yes, I can. Under the right circumstances. Keep your answers brief. What do I want? To be found out, same as everybody else. Are you in contact with the beyond? Well, we've had our share of snake charmers in the past. We deal with them. You don't fool people, Stan. They fool themselves. I've given you a fortune! It's time that you delivered. When does it end? I want to know. <laughs> if you displease the right people, the world closes in on you very, very fast. Alright everybody, you were just listening to the trailer for Nightmare Alley, and the story is as follows. In 1940s New York, down on his luck, Stanton Carlyle endears himself to a clairvoyant and her mentalist husband at a traveling carnival. Using newly acquired knowledge, Carlyle crafts a golden ticket to success by swindling the elite and wealthy. Hoping for a big score, he soon hatches a scheme to con a dangerous tycoon with help from a mysterious psychiatrist who might be his most formidable opponent yet. The film is starring Bradley Cooper, Kate Blanchett, Tony Collette, Willem Dafoe, Richard Jenkins, Rooney Mara, Ron Perlman, Mary Steenburgen, and David Strathairn. It is written and directed by Guillermo del Toro, co-written by Kim Morgan, and here to join me today for this podcast review, I have Nicole Ackman. Hello, hello. Zach Gilbert. Did I oversell it? Emma Sasek. Hey, everyone. Casey Lee Clark. Hello. (laughs) And Dan Baer. Why, Matt, you really do take my breath away. (laughs) God. (laughs) Oh, man. That's the end of the podcast. Thanks for listening, everyone. (laughs) Goodbye. All right, we are talking about Nightmare Alley. This is Guillermo del Toro's, not a remake, an adaptation of the novel from once the original film from 1946. No, 1947, right. Yeah, 47 the film, 46 for the novel uh, came out starring Tyrone Power. It's interesting because Guillermo del Toro typically does creature movies. At least a lot of his movies deal with the supernatural they got some element of a monster in them, but the line that's been used frequently to describe Nightmare Alley is that the monsters are the humans themselves. So this is very much a psychological character study, a dark one at that. And also, if you ask people who are not cinephiles and have no familiarity whatsoever with this original film, uh, sorry, with the original film, they have probably have no idea what the heck this movie is even about from the marketing materials out there. I was talking to somebody the other day who literally thought this was a werewolf movie. I'm not kidding. So it's been very interesting to see how this movie has opened up against 
uh, Spider-Man No Way Home over at the box office. And those who are familiar with Guillermo del Toro, this type of cinema, are flocking to check it out. And there's definitely a lot of things to discuss in regards to this one. It's definitely longer than the 1947 film, uh, which clocked in at 111 minutes. This one over here is clocking in at 150 minutes. Was it warranted? How did Guillermo del Toro pull it off? Let's talk about it. Let's head on over to the carnival back in 1941 and discuss starting first with Nicole Ackman. Okay. So I had high hopes for this one. I was really into the trailers look at this like carnival atmosphere and some people might know that I'm a bit of a fan of uh, one of Del Toro's movies called Crimson Peak and had heard that maybe this was more like that than Shape of Water which I am most decidedly not a fan of and the thing about Nightmare Alley for me is that it is gorgeous it's so impeccably well designed and the sound work is amazing and the costumes and the production design and the cinematography but it feels so incredibly empty to me uh i couldn't emotionally connect with this at all i think that they don't handle the story very well i think some of the performances are pretty good uh i think others are kind of just there i don't think any of the actors in this movie who are all incredibly talented are doing anything that's like in any way a show of the you know absolute like range of their talent or anything i think they're all kind of like okay yep i've seen them i've seen them do better before so i have just like very weird thoughts about this because i think on one hand it's very well made and on the other hand uh it in no way deserves its runtime and it's it, you know i got to say it's not uh <laughs> it's not my favorite of the two willem dafoe movies that opened yeah all right i see where you're coming from nicole i get it Totally. I think I even agree with you on many of those points. But before I get to my own thoughts, let's hear next from Zach Gilbert. So I'm a little bit hit or miss on Guillermo del Toro. I first was exposed to his work through Hellboy, which I saw when I was really young and I thought it was super cool and badass for watching it in like elementary school. And I really loved the aesthetics of those films. But as I got into some of his other stuff, um, I wasn't the biggest fan of The Shape of Water. I think it was more so to do with what else came out that year and me thinking like those films should have won over it. And then I think Pan's Labyrinth is definitely was his best film in my eyes before this, but I wasn't like as over the moon for it as other people. So when I saw the trailers to this, I was definitely intrigued and I hadn't seen the original yet. So I didn't know all the twists and turns. And basically, I just kind of knew the basic bare bones plot. But I was really intrigued by the cast. I thought it looked really interesting. I re- Obviously, the texts were incredible, as is to be expected with Guillermo del Toro. But I went into this the night after it premiered. And so I kind of heard like the lukewarm takes. And I was like, kind of prepping myself, lowering my expectations. But I was honestly in from the beginning. I admit that the first hour is definitely a little bit slower than what comes after. And it's a lot of world building. But I was just so intrigued by the politics of this carnival environment and the production design. And by the time we jump ahead and we really see uh, Bradley Cooper's Stan and all his scheming, I was just so enthralled by that and his partnership with Kate Blanchett. I do agree with Nicole. I don't think any actor here is doing their best work, but I thought everybody in the ensemble did an excellent job regardless, and especially Kate Blanchett. She was definitely my MVP 
Um, I don't think, again, it's her best work either, but it's, she's just, you know, so easy to watch when she's on screen. And yeah, I ended up really loving it, especially where it ends up. I thought it was just deliciously sick and <laughs> such a really ferocious full circle moment. And yeah, I think I am one of the biggest fans of this right now, which is a weird little island to be on, but I'm happy to sing its praises. I've been there, Zach. I've been there. <laughs> Get the knives out. <laughs> Get ready to defend that island. All right. Let's hear next. Emma, you joining the island? I'm joining the island. Yes, I am. Um, I, too, walked into this without knowing a whole lot of the story. Um, I, I could deduce from the trailers that it was not a werewolf mo- movie, so I'll give myself that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, you know, I figured out carnivals messiness, all that, all things that I genuinely like to subscribe to. Um, And honestly, I really was enamored by this whole film. Um, On the technical side, it is stunning. It is gorgeous to look at. The production design is just mind-blowing. Every color and light shows up in like such a beautiful way. Um, So on that side, loved it. Also really loved the performances in here. I mean, does every actor get the best role and really get to showcase themselves in the best way? Maybe not, but my God, Bradley Cooper and Kate Blanchett, especially Miss Blanchett showing up like she owns the place because she does was just fantastic. And I, I too really from the beginning was like, I've signed up, I'm in for the ride. And like, I just, I was watching this uh, the second day after it had premiered. And, uh, like my eyes were just so wide looking over my mask the entire time. So I'm happy to join the Island. I will defend this Island with my whole being if I have to. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Casey Lee Clark. What did you think of nightmare alley? I liked this a lot as well. Um, I went into this highly anticipating it. I'm a big fan of del Toro's work. I've been eagerly awaiting him to follow up The Shape of Water, which I was a big fan of. And I had seen the 1947 film somewhat recently. I had recorded it off of TCM um, and I enjoyed it. So I kind of knew what I was getting into. And overall, I think I really, I really liked this. I think it's not perfect by any means and I don't think it makes my top 10, but I had a good time watching it. I think it looks absolutely stunning. The cinematography and the production design are so incredible. Um, it's a, both a pretty film and a gross film at the same time. Not often gross, but when it is, Jesus Christ, that gore. He really knows how to turn it on when he turns it on. <laughs> I, I, that, that's it. I appreciate that. I appreciate that in a movie when it goes there. Um, I think the cast is really great. Of course, my standouts being Blanchette. She's a movie star in every frame, you know, from the moment she's on screen with her cigarette and her, her gowns and that icy glare. I think she's just perfectly cast no one i think commands the screen in the way that she does um in the modern day i also really liked um, richard jenkins and Willem defoe who are some of my favorite actors of course and yeah i think that if i had any problems with it i feel like the script is a bit messy mostly structurally i just i, I agree like the pacing can be a little bit off even though i was never bored i think it does drag at times and i think like you know things just get a lot more heightened in that third act but um, overall, I still like appreciate it for what it is. And I think it did expand a lot of things from that original, what I'm assuming from the novel. 
And I like that it was like a movie for grownups that was like this old Hollywood style, but they cursed and there was this gore. And I feel like a lot of it went there. And while even if it doesn't fully work all the time, I still overall just really respect it. And yeah, it didn't make money. It's not going to make much more. (laughs) Yeah, we got to really cherish these mid-budget adult films because (sighs) dying breed dying breed in this day and age dan bear i was next to you at the world premiere for this you so i kind of know what you think of (laughs) nightmare alley but tell everyone that's listening what you thought of nightmare alley i bought it hook line and sinker that is true. <laughs> <laughs> the, it is one of those movies that really makes you kind of sit up and go on like, oh, this was made for me. <laughs> it is like gorgeous production design, costume design, beautiful score, beautiful cinematography, hot actors being hot and talented. And just that like little bit of sick underneath this veneer of the the really beautiful uh filmmaking um it's kind of I, rem- I think i said this to you on the night that it reminded me of one of jennifer lawrence's lines from american hustle how she's talking about the, her favorite lip balm and fragrance like it's so subtle but there's a little bit of sour underneath that keeps you coming back and I just watched this for the second time right before this. And to be honest, I was a little afraid that having seen it once, I would not enjoy it as much because there it doesn't have the sort of element of surprise and where is it going and oh my God, they really did that. But it, I still bought into it. And I think it's because of how strong Del Toro is as a storyteller, how this really just coils itself around you like a snake and slowly throughout that whole running time gets tighter and tighter until that last act hits and you just cannot escape. And my word, that final scene, best work of Bradley Cooper's career right there. I do not disagree in that regard. And I've seen this film twice now. I just finished it right before we hopped on for this recording a second time. And I think I liked it less on the second viewing compared to the first, which is very unfortunate because I am a massive Guillermo del Toro fan. And I very much loved The Shape of Water. And this being the follow up to that, you know, a film that won the Oscar for Best Picture and him the Oscar for Best Directing. I definitely think that there was a certain expectation heading into this, but I still had my expectations relatively in check the night that we saw it at the premiere. I think what I was hoping for on a rewatch was that it was going to be psychologically deeper than I was expecting it to be because watching it the first time, you are so overwhelmed by the crafts of this movie. The cinematography by Dan Lauston is some of the best of the year. That camera is moving in practically every single shot with its 
wide frame and just the large format lenses and just the colors popping out, as everyone said here, with the production design, the costumes. I mean, the production design in this alone was holding my interest more than the story itself at times. Uh, and that was something to always kind of fall back on was, okay, even if I'm not really into this character journey for Stan Carlyle, or even if I, you know, Dan, no offense, you said, like, where's the story going? I kind of knew where it was going, and it was very predictable in terms of a rise and fall and this character getting greedy with his long con that he's playing and just ultimately where that was all going to end up for him. Uh, that watching it again, like I said, I was hoping that there would be more layers to it, that I would be able to appreciate some more subtlety maybe in the storytelling as to that character's journey and where he ultimately ends up by the end. Because it is fascinating. Don't get me wrong. But like what Nicole said earlier, I don't think it warrants the two and a half hours to actually get there. Even though there are moments sprinkled throughout that I do find very enjoyable, I too found it to be hollow and Yes, I understand it's a noir, so I understand it's meant to be cynical and it's meant to feature ugly people on the inside, even though, as mentioned before, all the people on the outside are ridiculously gorgeous and they're lit gorgeously and everything in this movie just looks gorgeous. Uh, But I found myself very, and I hate using this term, I was very left, I was left cold by this film. I didn't really have much to latch on to outside of the technicals when all was said and done. And I want to first start off by talking about the performances because everybody really, you know, had a moment there where they singled out Kate Blanchett. Uh, Dan, you mentioned best moment of Bradley Cooper's career at the very, very end here. I think upon reflection, I think that this might actually be Cooper's best performance, maybe. Because that is something that really came across to me on the second viewing this time around was just how despicable Stan Carlyle is. But at the same time, he's so watchable because he's played by Bradley Cooper, Mr. Charming himself. And that little drawl he gives, like, (laughs) and the hair and the must. Sorry, like, he is suave as fuck in this movie and oh what does tony collette say to him at one point you're easy on the eyes honey yeah like you're a maybe (laughs) and those are dangerous for me (laughs) oh my god i love i love like every little detail of every performance in this they are like playing the characters yes but they're also playing like the old hollywood archetypes of them in this type of movie it <sighs> they're also they're also playing each other. They're always constantly yeah. sizing each other up and trying to figure out what makes the person tick, uh, because that's ultimately what this movie is about. Right. It's about understanding people so that you can best take advantage of them for your own gain. Real quick, going back to Bradley Cooper's performance, I think what makes him work so well in this is that you buy him. You both buy him as, you know, the the guy digging holes in his wife beater and as the guy in the tux. But he also, at the same time, in both, doesn't feel like he fits either. You know, no. he always seems like something's off there. I mean, him being like a drifter and constantly going through life in a way just completely broken and lost due to the events that happened to him in his past. I mean, that's the kind of psychological effect that he uses on others in this movie uh, to get money out of them, praise, adulation, whatever you want to call it. And 
I find it very interesting how the movie wants to dig deeper into Stan Carlyle in regards to his relationship with his father throughout this. But I never got that emotional connection to it. I, I found it to be interesting, but I never found myself emotionally tied to Stan Carlyle in a way that like I could walk out of there saying like, oh, that was one of the greatest performances I've ever seen or oh, that was such a fascinating character. Uh, it's just it's 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 daddy issues. Uh, like we <laughs> I've, I've seen that before. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. And I I think that that last scene that Bradley Cooper has is like astoundingly good. Oh, yeah. But I also feel like for most of the film, he's doing like good but not great work. Uh, yeah, I think part of that is like the nature of the character and the journey that we're going on. He doesn't really come alive as a character until the very end of mm -hmm. the first act in the uh, carnival. Yes. And even after that, he is the least interesting person because he's the one who is constantly keeping himself Guarded. Would you say? Would you say he's holding his cards close to the chest? Oh, yes, <laughs> actually, I would. <laughs> I did, I found it absolutely baffling that in the first what five ten minutes somewhere in that range he doesn't have a single line of dialogue. No. I like. I thought that was really interesting too because I yeah. I immediately noticed it. I was like, the first word he says is I don't know something not that important, but I was like, oh, we're finally actually hearing what he sounds like in this movie <laughs> but the funny thing about that though was that i didn't remember hearing him talk in the trailers so i was wondering is this shape of water like all over again oh. like is he actually <laughs> mute you know that would have been a choice <laughs> that's why i found it baffling but otherwise in terms of just here's how this character is starting off at the very beginning of the movie here's where this character needs to end in the final shot of the movie how do we get there that might be other than the technical elements of this movie like maybe my favorite aspect of it even though once again i found it to be just very predictable from a rise and fall sense and really not that much emotional depth to really explore it's really all of the scenery around him that makes the movie fascinating and aka not just the actual scenery but these other actors in this ensemble i don't disagree that he it's definitely like a bit of a predictable journey and that, you know, it's cold because he's kind of a hard character to embrace. But I kind of think speaking to what someone else said earlier, that he is just so naturally charismatic and compelling that even though I rationally know he's like an awful person and what he's doing is wrong, I was still really invested in his scheme, like especially with Richard Jenkins to see how it would play out. And even though like I'm like, girl, Rooney Mara, run for the hills, get away from him, like, don't go back. <laughs> like, I was still really interested to see what they planned together and, you know, how that whole plan came to fruition. And I think that's just a lot on Cooper's performance. Like, I still think A Star is Born is the best thing he's ever done, but he just really gives the character this quality that's just irresistible as a viewer. Yeah, I. you know what? You mentioned A Star is Born there. I think collectively as a whole, A Star is Born is probably his best performance. Mm -hmm. I, I think I'm so enamored by that final scene and that final shot so much that it like retroactively in my mind makes the rest of the performance feel like it's the best thing he's ever done. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, because... I really think like in those final moments and Guillermo said this too at the world premiere during the Q&A, he had mentioned that if they had nailed that moment or if they felt like they nailed that moment, then they nailed the entire movie. 
like everything else would would have been worth it if they can nail that final shot. And I actually think that they did to the point that I am noticing that even people who begrudgingly like don't really like this movie, they're still like not saying that they absolutely hate it. They're still like at least mixed positive on it, <laughs> you know, because they because they stuck the landing on the ending. They absolutely did. And, you know, we were talking about like how we weren't very emotionally invested in a story. I guess like since he is this drifter, this mysterious guy, he kind of always has this, he always distances himself from characters. Like he's not telling Rooney Mara's character really what he's up to and what he's doing. Mm -hmm. He does, he just kind of does things on his own. And that's why I think I really found him so fascinating. Um, Maybe we didn't really get a whole lot of that backstory or as much as we would have wanted, but he's just this character who you're like, what is the next move? Maybe you might be able to see the overall rise and fall of him, but there's just always that aura of mystery that is around him. And then when Kate Blanchett comes into the picture, it just amplifies it even more. Oh yeah. I mean, she is just exquisite in this. I have to say that I personally think this is my favorite performance of hers that I've ever seen. Just because oh, wow. I could not keep my eyes off of her like anytime she showed up on screen I was like you could hear a like a a pin drop like it was quiet everybody wanted to take in every single evil and delicious word that she said and like I just sat there in uh, the theater thinking like okay I need every movie from now on to be a black and white noir film starring Kate Blanchett because she fits so perfectly into this world and into these very mysterious, powerful characters. So I absolutely adored this role for her. And any cackle that she had in her laugh was just so soothing to me. <laughs> there is a black and white film with Kate Blanchett called uh, The Good German, FYI, that mm-hmm. uh, fits the description <laughs> of what you're looking for. <laughs> well, I know what I'm watching next. Uh, it's not that great. <laughs> Blanchett is so good in this. Like, she's just burning a hole through the screen with her eyes. It is. Oh, yeah. Absolute masterclass in, like, old school charisma screen acting just any type of oh no she is like the very definition of a femme fatale in this and i think that she rises to that challenge so well in a way that other actresses i don't think could have pulled this off um i'm not saying that she's the only one that can but very few can yeah it's like that power but also that sex appeal and like no one else in this film the di- where the dialogue just comes from her mouth and it sizzles. Yeah. I mean, some of the back and forth that she has with Cooper where they're doing like sexual innuendos in like Ugh. all of their Ugh. lines of dialogue with one another. So good. She's just such a sly little lady and I love her. She is having, <laughs> she is having so much fun. She is. But mm-hmm. it pains me because my one really big problem with this movie involves her. Oh. Oh, and it's not her performance, but that character mm-hmm. and like slight spoiler, the the big scene, the big climactic scene between her and Cooper is so much fun to watch. And I wish the movie would have committed to just one tiny reason why she does what she does. <laughs> yeah, kind of. I mean, <laughs> let's. This is this is going back to what I was saying earlier, though, which is 
the plot of this movie is really not all that interesting when you break it down. Staren Carlisle is doing the things that he's doing, uh, well, for a couple of different reasons, but most of it is because of the money. But you know what, though? If you want to get really deep with it, and I don't know if all of this is there to support this, but really what you could argue is that these are two characters, Stan and Dr. Lilith Ritter. These are two characters who are getting off on getting one over on somebody else. So if he can outplay her, he feels more powerful. She doesn't like that, especially in their introduction scene at the club. So when he's in her office and they're having these therapy sessions and he, she he's forced to tell her the truth about his past, she holds the power over him. And now as the movie comes to a head, it's a climactic scene that is establishing, okay, both of these characters have traded these blows of power back and forth. Each one of them have had the upper hand at one time or another over the other in this battle of control, if you will. Now who has the ultimate power in this final situation? And it proves to be her because I think he cares more about the money than she does. And also in that situation, like he needs her. Like he's, you know, he's like, oh, well, like I need to get, get my money from you, get, you know, clean up and like help me get out of here. Mm-hmm. I get everything you're saying. It's just that, <laughs> I mean, not just the fact that I need a little more. I don't. But that goes back to my original complaint, too. I get that they're kind of playing with genre tropes, you know, a little. Right. But there is it like makes feints in the direction of it being a class thing. She mentions his accent and that he's an oaky and um, that he's fooling all these upper class wealthy people. And it also faints in the direction of it being like a gender thing. Like she just wanted to, you know, show that she could get one up on this man who thinks that he knows everything, but it doesn't commit. And I'm not sure really that Blanchette commits to either of those either. Well, she does say to him in that scene, am I powerful enough for you now, Stan? Yes, that she does. I get that, but there's not a, I didn't feel the intent from her as to what kind of power she was talking about. It feels like one of those scenes where, and I feel like the movie might have a lot of these, where you don't really fully have a problem until you actively think about it. Yeah, and this is something that only came to light for me on the second viewing, so, you know. (laughs) <laughs> because like when you're watching it, it's like, oh, it's fun and delicious, and yes. she double crossed him, and oh, she shot, and then it's like, then you think about it because I didn't think about it until you were saying it. I was just like, oh yeah, it is. Hmm. Well, I think what it is is like you have to ask yourself the question of what does Stan want and why, and I think that that can be mirrored to Kate Blanchett in a, in a in a way, right? So like, what does Stan Carlisle want? He wants to feel powerful, right? Why does he want to feel powerful? Because he has none. Exactly. You you think about like the stuff that they reveal about his character through his childhood with his father being an alcoholic and uh, his mother uh, leaving his father for another man. And the I'm sure the demoralization, the demasculinity, everything else that like kind of maybe came along with that. And so here he is kind of going through life as literally a nobody, a drifter without a penny to his name. 
and he wants to make something of himself. I think maybe the problem is that we don't know early on exactly what it is that's driving him until later in the movie. Um, and it's all kind of part of the reason why I think the second half of the movie, I think, works better than the first half. Because the first half is introducing us to the carnival, to Stan, to the world. But it keeps us at an arm's length as to Stan's motivations. And it doesn't really start to become clear until the second act, I would argue. And then, of course, that's also where Kate Blanchett comes into play, which helps considerably. I would agree, except that I love the first act of this movie. <laughs> and part of it is just the carnival setting. I love old school carnivals and freak shows and all that stuff. I find that whole milieu so fascinating and so much fun to look at, even when it looks bad. Um, but I love the long form like establishing of the rules and the stakes and i think that it sets the rules and the stakes of this movie up so slyly um it's never quite exposition even though it is and i liked it because it kept me interested through stuff that in lesser hands would not have been very interesting at all or just felt like an exposition dump with hot people doing it, which is, you know, I have been known to fall for that on occasion. But here, it just seems like they actually really thought about how do we weave this through this first act and also give you a sense of place and time and character along with it. And I think that it works really well on that front. And now that you have set up the stakes and the rules of this world now it's time to amp that up and take it to the next level outside of the pre relatively protected world of the carnival and that is what keeps the second half just as interesting even though it doesn't have that really fun setting for me See, for yeah. me, I really preferred the carnival section in the beginning of this film because I think for me in that first carnival section, even whenever the plot maybe isn't the most engaging, even though you're not seeing like uh, anything that impressive acting wise, it is the place where I think what this film is best at really shines. And that is the production design, the costume design, the cinematography, the sound, all of that. And so even though I was like not caring that much about the story, I was so in love with this world that the Toro was building that it didn't matter to me what was actually going on in the world as long as I could stay in it. So for me, once it left that carnival section, I was like, oh, well, there went the thing that I actually liked in this movie. And so I found the the middle portion of it really unengaging. And I do think like at the end, it sort of comes back around because you, you get more of an actual uh, something happening. But for me, like Dan was saying, that carnival is so sort of deliciously built. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's it's so intriguing and there's so many layers to everything and like seeing all the different personalities in the carnival and how they come together is so fun that it was able to sort of keep me engaged even though the plot wasn't the best whereas like once it sort of has to rely more just on the plot and the performances it lost me i was gonna point out too like you said the personalities really stuck out a lot in the first half because you know like we said like no one i don't think is doing like career best work from like tony collette or willem defoe but the way Del Toro introduces everybody makes mm -hmm. them feel really integral to the environment. They all have a really distinct identity 
the actors are really having a ton of fun and it clearly shows. And like we said earlier too, like Bradley's not doing as much acting in those scenes. So all these supporting players really get a pop. And I just thought that was really fun. Like getting to interact with Tony Collette's Zena and like, she's, you know, scheming with the people and everything and Bradley's underneath. And then you have Rooney Mara popping in and Ron Perlman just having fun. And I, I really liked, you know, getting to know, of them even if it's not as plot heavy as what comes next i don't disagree and one thing going back to what dan said earlier i've been thinking a lot lately about why so many movies are pushing the two and a half hour mark lately and i think a large reason for that is because um a lot of these mid-budget films i'm not going to say indies but mid mid-budget movies are wanting to compete with uh streaming they want to compete with long-form storytelling. So studio executives, I'm sure, are apprehensive about three-hour runtimes. But okay, two and a half, 228, 220, sure, you know? And that extra time does allow for you to get something similar to what you might get out of, say, like a miniseries or something along those lines. It's still a completely different format. But I do think that there is this... I do think that there is this like drive right now with many filmmakers that they have to want to give audiences their money's worth. Uh, and a lot of them seem to think that the answer for that is uh, time and how much is devoted towards telling uh, these character arcs and these stories. And while I do think that Nightmare Alley does indeed take its time, I just I really wish the payoff for it was more profound I didn't find, like, any big takeaways from this movie. Life Lessons didn't have me thinking about the movie and its themes, like, all that much. Instead, it was sensory for me. Um, kind of like what Nicole said earlier. The carnival, Kate Blanchett's red lipstick. Like, everything in this movie is just hitting my senses throughout. But uh, on an intellectual level, I wasn't really ever that engaged with it ain't nothing wrong with a style over substance movie baby no there's been plenty of those before <laughs> sure i get that totally and i'm not i, I want to make it clear like i'm not in the negative on this movie i actually did like it on the whole just not as in, as infusive in my praise as i thought i would be that's all i will say that like in a lot of other movies not having the actual plot really kick in until the last third would piss me off <laughs> but something about the way this movie is paced made me not be so upset about that. It's interesting, right? Because the way that this movie is structured is act one is all at the carnival, mm -hmm. introducing Stan Carlisle, introducing how he gets the ability to read people, we'll, we'll, we'll say, and pass himself as uh, a medium and fooling others. Second act, we are in... Upper high society, New York, where Stan's act, uh, there's like a two-year time jump, has now like really taken off. He's performing in clubs. Kate Blanchett is introduced. This is where like I feel like the movie really does, for me, start to get a little bit more exciting because of her inclusion. And then the third act is Richard Jenkins. And I agree, Dan. It's like, it's kind of bizarre that... That is what the whole movie's kind of been building up to. But really what it what that moment signifies is that is Stan. That's Stan's downfall. It's Stan uh, getting too greedy. What is um David Strafferen's character? What does he call it early on in the movie? Uh, the, the, the shut eye, if you will. 
it's uh it's where basically you're performing the act and you get you you go too far with it and you believe your yeah. own bullshit you, yeah. yes exactly That's what you're saying yeah you believe your own lies and then when you know you have nothing else left but the lies um he says something to the effect of like you know something about like confronting god and no man can outrun god and that's the trajectory for where stan's character is going the entire movie well and i think so much of that beginning i the, i think you have to have everything in that carnival in order for the yeah. ending to work Agreed. because of the way it bookends the way that it's one of those movies where you have to pay attention to everything Willem Dafoe says. That's all I'm going to say. Oh, that's true. Yeah. For that ending to really work mm-hmm. and for it to have an impact of like, oh, fuck. As if you wouldn't listen to everything Willem oh, Dafoe yeah, has to say. <laughs> right. Too true. Too but true. I, I, I was kind of like when that last scene happened and like the light bulb goes off and you're like, oh, no. It was like it's such so a, good. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was such a like he's laughing. You're laughing on the inside. But also you're like, oh, fuck, you have no idea. You do know what's going to happen to you, but I don't like what it's going to happen to you. <laughs> It just that twist is so juicy. It's great. It really is. And it's it's a calling it a twist is not really fair. It's right. that, that turn, that turn of events is so good. It's like, and it's so silly because it's like basic plotting 101, right? Mm-hmm. But it, it's, it's still so, so good. It's, it's so, so satisfying. satisfying. Here's the thing I, I find to be very interesting is that <sighs> I know I talked earlier about like where Stan starts at the movie and where he ends up. One could argue that he ends the movie exactly right where he began the movie. So I watching this again, I had an an idea popped into my head and it's really interesting if you watch how Defoe reacts to him in the early portions of the movie. Okay. And the possibility that he was always brought on to this carnival to eventually replace the geek huh. is <laughs> there. Oh, that is juicy. It is there and <laughs> so good. Oh, my God. And all that you need to get in there is just get him to drink because that's yep. totally different. Well, you, you remember, Dan, and I know this is not accurate because I even asked a producer like an yeah, idiot after the world that premiere. That would have been so good. But, uh, but oh. still, I everyone hear me out. When Tim Blake Nelson shows up at the very, very end in the office, because – the geek earlier on in the movie is covered in makeup so much. He kind of looks like there him. was a part of me that wondered if the actor was Tim Blake Nelson, and I just never realized it. I assumed that it was Tim Blake Nelson. Right. So that what an incredible like crazy. turn of events that would have been, right? But the producer was just like, no, 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 no. That was the guy from Peaky Blinders. That's not <laughs> Tim Blake Nelson. Like. <laughs> But still, <laughs> what you just said, Dan, does make me very excited to rewatch and just like even more closely pay attention to all of that just to see if if really from the get go, it was like, yep, this is what's going to happen. This is how he got brought on. Well, is there I think there's something to be said, though, for like human nature and inevitability in terms of seeking this power and just what it does to people, right? Everyone always talks all the time about how if you're power hungry, uh, eventually, you know, your pride comes before the fall and the fall is inevitable. Uh, And we see that happen with Stan Carlyle in this movie, so much so that he even has other characters constantly warning him 
about this. Like, I think Kate Blanchett says something to him at one point around the lines of, uh, if you displease the right people, the world closes in on you very, very fast. And I do find it fascinating also about how, like, Stan is fooling people, or at least he thinks he's fooling people, but people are really fooling themselves. This kind of, like, goes back to another movie that I really love called uh, The Prestige by Christopher Nolan. Yes, yes, yes. And it's all about, you know, that idea of a magician, you know, does his trick, but you, the audience, you want to be fooled. You want to believe that the illusion is real. And so you kind of just give yourself over to it. And that's exactly what Stan is doing by preying upon people's emotions, especially uh, calling upon like their dead loved ones, uh, or as they call it in this, uh, turning things into a spook show. And how that is a very dangerous thing, because when you toy around with people's emotions like that, if they find you out to be a fraud, it can get really dangerous. Don't do the spook show. And the thing is, is that Bradley Cooper, like, that's America. Yes. That's America is what he's standing in for. And the charlatans that come in and prey on people's minds because they want to be fooled. And I love this. um, I I don't really want to call it symbolism metaphor because it seems like not the right word for it, but I love him standing in for that because it is like there and it's really obvious if you think about it for five seconds, but you don't have to like the movie works completely completely without that and it can be just this fun noir story but then if you want to go deeper it is there and it is it's not pretty yeah and i think one of the best examples of kind of the dark side of this scheming is um with mary steenberg's character oh my god when it's gone too far like i i know we talked about this before dan like i literally like yelped Like, I did not see that coming at all. And I just thought that was so deliciously dark. And I was so happy they included that to really show, you know, like the cost of his actions. Because up until that point, you know, it is kind of like, oh, it's like fun. They're scheming, you know, him and Cape Blanchett. And then you see like what his actions actually wrought. And I was like, oh, that that scene just that stuck in my head ever since I saw it like three weeks ago. Well, like he says earlier that he like he he thinks he helped save their marriage. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, kind of a little. <laughs> Depending on how you want to look at it. <laughs> what a great edit, by the way. I had my eyes <laughs> shut. Couldn't. I literally said, like, oh, in the theater <laughs> where she did that. Like, it was so good. I mean, I, I, I literally was like two seconds away from like just like putting my hands on Dan and just being like, calm down, calm down. You know, you know, people are looking at you. I did hear pretty much everybody go, <gasps> In that moment. So that's a great <laughs> reaction. Uh, I, and also like was not expecting Mary Steenburgen to be cast MVP, but like. I, always a surprise. Uh, always yeah. a surprise. She's fantastic as always. You know, and then there are other members of this cast here that I wish had more to do, uh, like Ron Perlman, Clifton Collins Jr., uh, Damon Strafferin too. I liked the brief moments that we got of him in this, uh, but I wanted more. Tony Collette, I liked her. I liked her scene, especially with Bradley Cooper uh, in the bathtub. <laughs> when she, when she's like crying over uh, Pete, 
I, I just like I, I just kept saying to myself, I was like, oh, it's hereditary, like all over again, but not as good. Yeah, I was like the <laughs> most awesome. looking forward to her in this in this movie because I think Joan Blondell is fantastic in oh. the '40s version, and I I I almost don't love what they did with the character, and I can't describe what it is if it's like the look they gave her or just something where I'm just like, I feel like this could have been done a little bit differently. I really don't think that she had enough to do. I also think that her scenes where she's sort of performing her show could have been like campier or something. I thought so because too. I kept, ex- I kept really looking forward to actually seeing her in action and being like, Oh, that'll be like a good big moment. And then it honestly felt sort of like small to me. Um, particularly whenever you compare them sort of to even like what Bradley Cooper is doing later, whenever we see him, uh, doing his sort of performance where, where Kate Blanchett first finds him. And I just wanted more because I know that Tony Klett is like capable of more than that. Yeah. That like that stage performance, it was just, it was so quickly over just because her husband was drunk and just you know she kind of had to like think on her feet very quickly um and then I would have loved to have seen more of them like doing the act that later Bradley Cooper and Rudy Mara doing obviously because that's kind of their own act and it was very interesting to kind of see them just perform it uh very like a low scale type of production in their house to Bradley Cooper but like I would have loved to have seen their version of that on stage um so yeah there was just like not given her a whole lot to do well see and I love that they were kind of going with the like <sighs> Because, like, we think of carnivals and freak shows as, like, big fun and kind of campy, but, like, everyone buys into it. But they, I kind of love how they, like, just took all of the varnish off of it and presented it in all its kind of tawdriness. And that extends to Xena and Pete in that, like, they are past their prime. Mm. Right. Okay. And they're still doing it and they're still good, but the maybe the enthusiasm is not quite there there it's it's a job you know and i think that's we kind of romanticize the circus and the carnival a lot in our society but or in his throughout history i think it has been sort of romanticized but like it's a job sure and i think also like with the tim blake nelson thing at the very end he's like all mental yeah. out mm. yeah yeah it's sort of showing how that is, has been declining. And Bradley Cooper, you know, gussies it up and makes it, you know, he's like Hugh Jackman in The Prestige. But when you take it to Tony Collette, and I love that she just like strips it all back in this performance. And yeah, she could have, I would have loved to have seen her really go full on in that, in the scene where she is doing the act and really, you know, dial it up to 11. But that would have felt weirdly out of place in the world of the carnival that they were creating. It's interesting because like what I wanted from Tony Kalletinus, I got from Kate Blanchett mm. and poor Rooney Mara. I got absolutely nothing from her at all in this. Yeah. Yes, girl. Give yeah. us nothing. Give us nothing. <laughs> yeah. Really good at giving us nothing when the movie calls for it. Like a ghost story, Carol. <laughs> I, I'm not saying I'm not, like, listen, I'm not belittling her performances and that to nothing. That's not what I'm saying here, people. Mm-hmm. I'm saying she's good at minimalism. Here, it's working against her. Yeah, yeah. I, I I, don't think Rimara's giving a bad performance. I think, like, you, she could have pr- maybe brought a little bit more, but I think 
the character is also just kind of like a nothing character. She's just kind of like the good in his life, basically. And that's like, she's not really defined beyond that. Like, I don't really know much about Molly's wants or needs or anything aside from just kind of liking Stan and like, and if you're going to make that like a, you know, if you're going to make that like a a trait of her, at least tie it into some social commentary in terms of, you know, uh, gender roles during this time uh, for people and like the relationships and how men were getting all this opportunity versus women. And, you know, I I, I, like they could have just done more with it to illustrate, but they didn't. And instead, I agree. Her character is very bland. And as a result, her performance, I think, is very bland in this. I think it's a failure of casting. She was not the right. She's that is an ingenue part and she is not an ingenue. Mm, Interesting. Yeah. You cast an actual like in that like cast. I because she's in another movie opening this season, like cast Haley Bennett in that role. And I think she does a more interesting job with it than Rudy Martis because she actually is an ingenue. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. I, think, I agree um, completely. Yeah, I think Rooney Mara's best scene is the scene at the at the train station, her like last scene when she's like yelling at him and is like crying in the bathroom. Okay, her last scene is the when she runs away, but the 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 one <laughs> in the train station. And I think also just she embodies that imagery very well, especially like, you know, in the big Richard Jenkins scene. The thing that I did like about her in this movie was that in the 40s one, I don't remember the actress's name, but I never buy her at the carnival. She always seems too, like, cutesy and put together. I'm like, I don't know how this girl got there. Whereas Rooney Mara at least has that, like, not quite weird factor, but she's the kind of, she's, you know, a little sadder and a little more, like, quiet and awkward where, like, you can buy that somebody that had, like, a shitty childhood would end up here. Well, yeah, well, I mean, they basically mentioned that she was raised in this world, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Because her father was friends with uh, Ron Perlman or something like that. Mm-hmm. I just feel like it's obviously not a great role anyways, but right. I do feel like another actress could have pulled more out of it. Like, I think about the amount of, like, genuinely good performances Clara Foy has done in nothing roles. 
and and I feel like also, like Dan said, it's bad casting in that she doesn't fit the type of role that this is. And I feel like whenever you also have this movie where a lot of people in it, like Kate Blanchett, are playing into a specific like archetype of character, this is the ingenue archetype. And they cast someone who's very much not an ingenue, which is just very weird to me. So I think that it's, it's part Rooney Mara's fault, part not her fault. And also like someone who like seems to really hate the ingenue trope which is interesting and like yeah more power to her for doing that because there are many reasons why she should hate the ingenue trope but it just leads to the idea of like why cast her in this role i i honestly think it's because she looked yeah. she looked the time period when you put the wig on her or her do her hair in a certain way she she fits the aesthetics great yeah yeah yeah, I think that's really what it comes down to. And also, too, she is a name. She is talented. I just mm-hmm. think she, I agree. I think she was just miscast for this. That's all. I don't see why you wouldn't want her. I could totally see why you would you would want her. But it just didn't, it just didn't play out the way that I wanted to. And then uh, the other performance in this that I, oh, I was like so frustrated because this is a performance I thought was actually really good, but didn't have enough time, needed a few more scenes to actually like maybe be like even in the awards conversation was Richard Jenkins as Ezra Grendel. I thought that he was absolutely crushing it in the third act. You motherfucker. Yeah. You yeah. motherfucker. <laughs> oh, I, give me more Richard Jenkins swearing in my life. I God, between this and the humans so, this year, like, he yes. was just. I have given you a fortune. (laughs) Love it. And then like, it's so cool too, because like he, during that polygraph scene, uh, which is actually one of, one of the better scenes in the movie, the way that he is just ice cold, staring down Cooper while he's taking this test, like literally like holding back, like all the seething rage within him that if this guy is another trickster, who's coming here to try and calm me, I swear to God, I'm going to slice his throat. Like that is what the expression on his face is conveying. And then he can go from that to being so emotionally vulnerable in these scenes with Cooper I was just like, oh, my God, buddy, I really wish you were in this movie a lot longer than the last 25 minutes. And I think all the darkness underlying that character with that, like, is like implied with what he's saying. But where you're just like, oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And And I was going to say that same thing about his range. Like you said, like in the lie detector scene and then to the scene with Rooney Mara playing like the ghost of his dead wife or whatever, like his mistress, I think it was. The mistress. Yeah. Yeah. Cause she got, he had her do the back alley abortion or whatever, but oh my God, like it's so crushing. And you're like, this is so screwed up. Like what they're doing to this poor guy. Like obviously he's made mistakes and stuff, but like Richard Jenkins just sells that so well. And then the slow realization of what's really going on, like that entire moment is just expertly executed. Just and everybody. Just, and also learning in real time about Richard Jenkins character during that Big final moment was like, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, no, yeah. run, run, get out of there. Mm-hmm. It is so brilliantly constructed. And I really love that you kind of feel for this guy. And there's a moment where it really does feel like, okay, this may actually be okay because he is showing some remorse and like he is buying into it. And then he just can't control himself no 
Like, it worked too well. And it was also, like, the perfect way to push Stan to a, a moment where he then loses control and legitimately uh, beats this man to death. And literally, I love it because the first thing Kate Blanchett says about him is he's unpredictable. I mean, once he laid hands on Rooney Mara, it was pretty predictable what he was going to do. <laughs> well, no, well, yeah, for that point. But yeah, but going leading up to that, like everything... Everything that he does is like he wants us to work and he's just willing to throw whatever money at it. And you feel like, okay, once he's finally thrown off and he feels like he's really ready in that moment at the beginning of the scene. Did you get a sense that he had the capability to do what he did to him, not just because in that moment he reveals that he's an abuser of women and because he strikes Rudy Mara, but maybe because psychologically deep down he's killing his father all over again? maybe I don't think it's quite as easy as Kate Blanchett would have us believe <laughs> <laughs> but could be could be could be uh, one other thing I also would like to uh, bring up here before we get to final thoughts um, are the crafts of this movie if anybody's got a note or any small details or anything that they would like to shout out about the crafts here by all means, feel free to do so. Can I shout out the shape of water shot of him on the train? Oh, oh my God. Yeah. yeah. I thought the same thing, right? Yeah. It's literally the same color grading. Yeah. <laughs> the shape of water. shots in the trailer, too. And I remember yeah. we were like, oh. Well, it is, it is Dan Lawson again working with him. So. The same cinematic universe. Yeah. <laughs> it was the Leonardo DiCaprio mean. Oh. I'm here for the Del Toro verse. Give me everything. Uh, the other thing I also wanted to point out is, uh, and I know we kind of alluded to this earlier, but uh, Dr. Lilith Ritter's office, oh. the design and construction of that office to be, as I imagine it right now, just full of detail, but detail in a way that makes you, the person stepping into it the first time, feel small. Mm-hmm. And that is what like gives her the power in that space. I was very much blown away by how much detail went into the overall construction of that office. It's probably the, one of the biggest offices I think I've ever seen anyone in any movie ever have ever <laughs> as well. It's very beautiful and intimidating like she is. And I appreciated those similarities and just how well the person <laughs> went with the office. Like, you know, you see an office like that and it paints a certain type of person who would probably be in that office. And it just naturally fits that it would be somebody like her. I also love the, um, the hotel room apartment thing where uh, Bradley Cooper, and Rooney Mara live and like the opulence of that. And then the juxtaposition between like where they were living, like with the carnival, like her yeah. little, uh, her little trailer. And like, I think he's in like a tent. Like, I think when you first see that hotel room, you're like, oh, they've, they're moving on up. I love that Willem Dafoe literally says, oh, it's around the corner. There'll be a nice bed for you to sleep in. And it's literally like not even like a mattress. It's just like a cloth on the floor. He's literally behind lines. the geek. Yeah. <laughs> like around the corner from the geek. Literally the only thing he has that the geek does it is a mattress. Yeah. It's like watch out for the jars of fetuses. And then you yeah. And I got to point out too, uh, Alexandra Desplat was supposed to score this movie and as many of us all here know at the last 
possible moment. I mean, I remember when this news broke and we were like, wait, when is this coming out? Uh, He was replaced by Nathan Johnson, who has worked with Ryan Johnson uh, before. And I got to admit, listening to the score for this movie in the moment, if you told me that it was an Alexandra Desplat score, I probably would have believed you. Like it had the same qualities. I guess so. If you had told me that it was written literally like finished like days before the movie opened, that it was written by someone who had come on to the project long after it was should have been finished, like I would never have believed you because it's it's pretty perfectly attuned to everything that's happening. I like it. I like it as a mood piece, and I yeah. think it definitely works for what Guillermo is going for, but. I also did find it to be unmemorable. Like there were no motifs or themes that stood out to me in this. I just think it's very impressive that somebody can like (laughs) orchestrate an entire score in just a few days time. Like that is, that's the most impressive thing to me. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It blows my mind. And we've seen that happen before in other movies too, which I still to this day, I like, I I don't know how, people do it <laughs> i have no idea and like and it does it's not that it sounds generic uh, there's nothing that i could like hum to you yeah but that's but that that to me is like generic then you know but no but like it feel it's not generic it feels very specific to this movie in terms of the atmosphere and mood the only that- thing that i would say is specific is i think in uh one of his uh scenes with kate blanchett cooper uh talks about how oh i don't remember who played the piano in his life but somebody played the piano in his life and so the piano is incorporated throughout the score for stan yeah that was good you know i like that i like that inclusion and then uh other than that somebody mentioned the sound work earlier in this movie really really freaking underrated sound work in this i I, going back and watching it a second time i appreciated so much more just how intricately detailed especially during the carnival uh scenes the sound work is here it's really really good oh my gosh yeah literally from like the first frame of like the fire crackling i was like okay yeah this already lives up to what i've heard about it and like you said into the like ferris wheels and like all this like sounds and voices at the carnival and stuff like yeah you're just immediately placed in that world and then probably actually, no, this is my this is my final thing I want to bring up here. Uh, the editing of the movie. I know we talked about a bit about the structure and everything before, too. I, I think the last movie that reminded me so much of this, like, two halves nature was Waves, where just the movie felt like it was divided so clearly between the first half and the second half. And here I feel like that happens again in a way that. I'm still kind of wrestling with it and how the movie is structured and how the editing kind of guides us along with that. But one thing I did really like is I did like a lot of the um, old school, uh, uh, old school transit transition techniques in the editing mm-hmm. to kind of mimic the style of the forties. That was a lot of fun. It did bother me that the, there's only one Iris in the film. But no, isn't there two? No, it's when we're leaving the carnival, but it's, but it happens during the time jump though. So it makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Like I wanted more of that. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but like I get it. if you're only going to do it once like that is a perfect place to do it. Sure, sure. All right. So for final thoughts on Nightmare Alley, I'm passing it over first to Nicole Ackman. Nicole, anything that we didn't mention that you want to mention or reiterate? Just want to say again, I think there's some really nice sound work in this movie, uh, particularly with like 
the watch ticking noise. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's really nicely done. I was wondering, like, sometimes early on, like, why is this being introduced? Where is this coming from? And then you realize the significance of the watch later, and it kind of mm-hmm. uh, subconsciously does click for you. I, I really did like that, especially when he hands it off at the very, very end, because now we know what the significance of that watch means to him as a character. Exactly. It's also like the inevitability of it all, right? Mm-hmm. Like that end is coming. Time is ticking. Yep. Yeah, him and uh, him and uh, Jonathan Larson should have a chat. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but otherwise, again, just to reiterate, I think it's it's a really beautifully made film on a lot of fronts, but I just found it very emotionally hollow and not saying as much as it could have said. And uh, I, I would have liked to have seen a lot more from a lot of these actors, even Bradley Cooper, who has this like fantastic final scene, but otherwise doesn't really do anything that spectacular, if you ask me, throughout the rest of the film. So... It's not my favorite Del Toro by a lot, but it's also not my least favorite. Okay, fair enough. Emma, what about you? I do have to say that um, I've enjoyed a lot of Guillermo Del Toro films in the past. Absolutely, Pan's Labyrinth, Shape of Water, you know, hit or miss. Um, But I did really appreciate kind of the move into, as we were saying, like the humans are the monsters in this movie and just kind of it being more rooted in reality in a sense. Um, I, I felt like that was a welcome change for myself. Um, and like I've said a few times already during the podcast, really the performances sold this film for me. Loved Bradley Cooper. Absolutely adored Kate Blanchett. Would have liked to have seen a little bit more, uh, you know, just would have liked to have seen more from the other actors uh, in here. And it kind of comes down to the script and what they were given. But overall, I still really enjoyed it. I would recommend it to a lot of people who do love those film noir films from the 40s and want to kind of get back into that era. So it was fun for me. All right. Casey Lee Clark. Weirdly enough, I really quick wanted to bring up who was almost Stan in this movie, which is Leonardo DiCaprio, who I I don't think the movie works as well. Mm. Even though he's a better actor than Bradley, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know if he could fully sell that duality and that like charm in the way that Bradley does, if that makes any sense. I I agree. He could sell the last scene. Of course he could. He could do that in his sleep, but like. This is going to sound like an insult, and I swear it's not. But I do think Bradley Cooper has a bit of a skeediness to him Mm -hmm. that really helps with this character. (laughs) No, I agree. Yeah. I agree. I think that Leo sometimes can come across as too self-conscious to play a character like this. Yeah. I also feel like, not fully, but I don't know why, I feel that... It would be compared maybe a little bit too much to his performance in Shutter Island at times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I can almost get the sense that maybe he feels like, OK, there are some things that I did in that movie I'd be doing again here. But then again, he's he, he's done that in other roles, too. So I don't know. I don't know why it didn't work out. Was it a scheduling thing? I, he picked Don't Look Up over it yeah. because of that. Yeah. I think it just came down to well, that. You know, he chose the environment. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else? No, that was just something on like. Uh, that was at the top of my head, like after I like saw the movie and thought about it. And then I was just like, oh, wait a minute. And like thought about why that wouldn't work. Mm. Zach, 
Yeah, I, I totally understand, like, everyone's little, like, critiques and stuff about the movie, like, with, you know, the two halves, the second being stronger, or it feeling a little emotionally empty. But I think, I I, I don't think it's, like, a movie that's going to change the world or anything, but I just thought it was a really strong story, in my opinion, and I thought it had a lot of compelling character work. And even if, you know, like, it is a bit of a predictable plot, and we kind of know where he's going to end up, I liked seeing all the particulars of that journey and I was genuinely surprised by a number of twists and turns it took. And I mean, like everybody else has said, the texts are terrific here. I mean, it's just an immaculately crafted film from top to bottom. And I think to something like Casey spoke to earlier, I'm a little bit more lenient, I think nowadays with these mid budget adult movies, like I, these are the type of movies that, you know, I originally fell in love with, not, you know, the like big blockbusters, which I do still enjoy from time to time. But I, genuinely fear for a world in which we don't really have nightmare alleys anymore so i just will jump with joy anytime we do get one this well made and this enjoyable in my opinion so yeah i'm gonna continue to champion this one co-sign that co-sign that hard dan bear so i love anything that reminds me of old hollywood style and glamour and this movie does that with almost without breaking a sweat, it is kind of ridiculous how gorgeous this movie looks and sounds in every frame. And I, it's basically co-citing everything that, uh, that was just said about how I want to see more movies like this, please. <laughs> like maybe not exactly like this, but like more movies that are like well appointed, with movie stars, with really thoughtful directorial decisions and um, slow burn but intriguing and compelling script that will, you know, sort of rope you in with the aesthetics of the movie before it springs the trap of its themes on you. And I, I really love this. And when I tell you that I was like genuinely nervous that it was not going to hold up on a second viewing, I could not have been happier that for me, it held up spectacularly well. And I also got to <laughs> a really good kick out of a line that I missed the first time this movie, when Tony Collette mentions having a sixth sense. Oh my gosh. Yes. Ah. <laughs> 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 uh. <laughs> Oh, man. I'm glad somebody else picked up on that. That's great. <laughs> All right. Uh, for my final thoughts, is he a beast or is he a man? I oh, just had to say that once. <laughs> um, what else we got here? Stand in the bathtub with Xena. I, I would, I'd be lying if I said I didn't glance over at Dan at one point and go, hmm? Yeah, did you see it? Hot. <laughs> <laughs> really fucking hot. Also, that's a man. That is a giant hunk of man, and I will climb him like a tree. And girl, Tony Collette girl, get it. Interesting that both him and Kate Blanchett have scars on their bodies that are not explained in the text of this movie. On her part, it's not explicitly explained. Correct. With him, we can infer. Yeah. Well, we can infer from her, too, but it's never explicit about what exactly happened yeah uh i have to mention the jar oh. Oh. and what a great piece of production design that is 
So good. He's always getting. Kate Blanchett's intro shot at the table, cigarette in hand, the spotlight behind her, iconic. Standing ovation. <laughs> really, really loved the cold blue in the garden scene in the third act and Molly's red coat contrasted against it. Just thought it was a very, very striking uh, use of color. Holt McCallany. I really, really like him. I love that he has become like this, like he's become one of those character actors that he pops up and stuff now. And people are like, oh, that guy. And I, once again, another character that I wish had more to do in this. But man, when he got run over and his head just came undone and oh, that gore was coming out. The arm. Oh, delicious. The arm. Loved it. This is gross. I loved it. <laughs> I love that Del Toro, even in like his quote unquote prestige films like Shape of Water, Pan's Labyrinth, he has these moments. Like I think of the sewing scene in Pan's Labyrinth. I think of uh, Michael Stuhlbarg. You know, you were speaking Russian, Bob. <laughs> I just think of all these very hyper violent moments that don't feel like they should fit in the rest of the movie. But Del Toro just can't help himself. He loves it. Magic of Del Toro. Yep. Uh, and then I guess the, yeah, that final shot, that final shot is one of my favorite moments in any movie I've seen this year. It, it, when I tell you that that final shot elevated the movie, truly for me, did it do wonders. And I think Cooper's moment, that, that final close up on his face, I know I said earlier, like it might be the best performance he's ever given collectively as a whole, as I mentioned before. Yeah, this is like definitely nowhere near at the level of the work that he did in A Star Is Born as a whole, but that scene itself, that moment, that might be like the best individual thing that Bradley Cooper has ever done. Really, really great stuff there. Uh, but like I said, second viewing, I went down in my grade and I'm kind of sad to admit that it just didn't hold up for me. I'm going with a six out of 10 for Nightmare Alley. Nicole? I'm a week seven out of ten, I think. Like, what? The... I can't be lower than you. What are you talking about? <laughs> I give it a lot of points for the fact that the craftsmanship is so good because I do think, like, on all the technical levels, it's really amazing. Uh, and and the performances are, for the most part, decent to to good. So I I don't, you know, it's it's really mostly just the script that I have huge issues with other than Rooney Mara's casting. So I'm a seven out of ten. Oh. Man, I feel like a piece of shit. <laughs> wow. Casey Lee Clark, what about you? God, I thought I was a seven. Um, <laughs> I think I'm a light eight. I was between a seven and an eight, and I was like, I'm going to wait and see what some other people say, because that'll determine it. I'm a, a soft eight. Am I going to just, like, throw everybody's grades off now throughout the rest of this? Like, I'm just well, honey, I, am a week I was seven. like, oh, I'm a seven. And then Nicole says seven, and I'm like, oh, I, well, then I, maybe I'm not a seven. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think y'all aren't understanding just how much I love that carnival. <laughs> <laughs> it's very great, man. In that regard... A seven for Nicole can mean a seven differently for Casey, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's all, it's all fine. It's all fine. <laughs> I was between a seven and an eight. I was torn and we don't do halves, so I'll round up. It is, it, it would be hilarious to me though, if like the most enthusiastic person here was like, I'm a five. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Zach? Um, I was, I was between an eight and a nine because I think I was an eight for the longest time and then the ending rose it for a little, a little bit for me, but I think until I rewatch, I'm going to stick with an eight for now and I see how it holds up. 
Okay. Emma? I'm a five. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, am... <laughs> I gave this an eight when I first watched it, and I'm going to stick with that. I'm excited to rewatch it and see if I have a similar experience to you, um, Matt, or if it kind of stays the same for me. All right. Dan Bear? I'm more disappointed that we weren't able to bring that grade back up for you, Matt, during the course of this review than the fact that you rated it a six. No, I, you know, and it's interesting, too, because as I'm listening and I'm hearing all the points that everyone's making, you know, Nicole likes the first half. Some other people like the second half. It's like a lot of our opinions are kind of all over the place. And I, if you had asked me after the first viewing, I would have said it was a seven. And I think that's what I have it logged as on Letterboxd. But having just watched it a second time afterwards, like when I tell you I didn't really feel anything watching this and all of those crafts were doing the heavy lifting throughout and what it does do well and what I am drawn to from a performance standpoint, just the overall story and the character arc is something that I just find to be like it's good. Don't get me wrong. It's not bad. Nothing is executed poorly in this, in my opinion, uh, but it's not at the level that I would expect from Del Toro, especially like at this at this point in his career. So where are you, Dan? Look, I can't quite give it a nine. I don't think it's like one of the 10 best movies of the year, Like, but maybe top 20. Um, or just under for me, I am a very, very solid eight. I love the second time through being able to focus more on themes and what it the um, larger, more symbolic, metaphorical story it's telling. And I can't wait to watch it again to see even more of that. All right. So as of this recording right now, Nightmare Alley was nominated for eight Critics' Choice Movie Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, not a single Golden Globe nomination. Hollywood Critics Association nominated it for Best Director and Best Production Design. It was on the National Board of Review Top 10 Films of the Year. Uh, it also has gotten a lot of production design mentions throughout the season so far. I really think that when it all is said and done with this bad boy, I think we're looking at just tech nominations. I do not see Del Toro repeating in picture director with nominations this year. Oh, no. No. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, I think it's just too crowded of a field, especially like director. Yeah, I think the Critics' Choice nominations especially felt, and I do like the movie, obviously, but I think it's kind of like defaulting, like Del Toro in with the other five and director. So weird. Yeah, it definitely felt like, you know, he's just kind of included because of who he is and kind of because this movie's been hyped up for a while and stuff since he hasn't really factored in elsewhere. Um, and I think I think production design will be the constant. But beyond that, I don't think Blanchett, as great as she is, will crack that supporting actress five. It's getting really crowded. And I don't think Cooper's at all in the actor conversation as much anymore. That was the other thing, too. Once Cooper didn't show up at Critics' Choice or Golden Globe, like, even if he does show up at SAG, even if he does, I still won't believe it. Yeah. yeah. And which, like, I wouldn't put it completely out of the realm of possibility, if only because this is one of the last movies that is being seen, and he ends on one hell of a high note. I agree. But even still, I don't think he does enough throughout the whole movie to really merit it. 
but I wouldn't be surprised if it happened. Not to mention, if he does get nominated either for actor or the movie gets nominated for picture because he's a producer on it, it will be his ninth nomination. That's insane. And he wouldn't be winning. So it's just like, don't yeah. let's not add more to that. Yeah. <laughs> now, one thing I did notice about the Critics' Choice nominations here uh, for the text, cinematography, costume design, production design, score, hair and makeup, visual effects. Critics' Choice loves to max out movies. Oscar likes to take a couple of those and say, yep, slice that up. That ain't happening. So what's on the chopping block here of those six craft nominations? Because if it gets that many nominations in the crafts, it is going to get a Best Picture nomination because no film has ever gotten that many craft nominations and missed the Best Picture lineup. Especially, Well, I, you know what? I don't know pre-expanded era, but at least in the expanded era. I would say score since we all kind of agreed that it was fairly unmemorable and I I can name at least five other scores that are much more memorable and beautiful and really fit in with the film. Um, I guess I'd kind of also say visual effects, honestly, just because I can't even tell you what other visual effects there were. I think there's a lot of set extensions, but Probably. I'll tell you this, though. I did an interview with the um, production designer. um Tamara uh, Deverell for this and she was telling me the carnival all real all sh- uh, like all designed all like none of that was CGI well yeah then awesome. definitely it's definitely oh ha- God, must get in it. for de- production design like even yeah. the Ferris wheel for the wide shot that they do at one point in the movie like even that's real I love it I love it so much <laughs> so uh, I, I agree though Emma like I'm asking myself what visual effects at, at yeah, what like, point what you know do? what did they yeah. do Oh, uh, the I, chicken. That's what the visual effects is. It's uh, the, oh, the chicken. The electricity oh. on Rooney Mara. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah. true. Two scenes, I, I agree. <laughs> I agree, Emma. I think it doesn't get in for those. And I also honestly don't think it gets in for costume design because the costumes are yeah. good, but they're not particularly memorable. And I think we've mm-hmm. got other things that are going to push ahead of it this year. It's a very competitive category this year for that. That's such a credit category. And I don't see the hair and makeup nomination panning out either. That I could see because in addition to the, it's mostly just glamour makeup, but those gore effects, man. But they don't ever nominate movies for gore. But no, no, but they don't. But they should. (laughs) And, you know, this is they, the I, mean, I agree. Movie, this is the kind of movie that could get in on the strength of the period hair and makeup, and then also have those more technical gore effects to sort of boost it. I, I do agree that it's kind of a long shot, but in a field of five, it could happen. I think yeah. I have it sitting at six. I do think it'll definitely make the short list for mm-hmm. uh, makeup and hairstyling, but. I also think it's going to get edged out by some other things that are just a bit more within the Academy's normal wheelhouse and a bit more impressive in that wheelhouse. I'm going to go with it getting nominated for cinematography. Even though it's a bubble contender in that category, I do think we are looking at a scenario where one of the default five shockingly misses for it. Production design, I think, is a given. I think it could. I, I think even without a Best Picture nomination, it could still win production design. Honestly, mm-hmm. yeah. Um. Oh. And I think score is still a fringe thing. Like it, it it's close. 
I go back and forth every day on whether or not if I want to include it or not. But one nomination it didn't get from Critics' Choice that I really do think could also happen at Oscar is I do think it could get a sound nomination. Really? I do. Yeah. I mean, because like, not that it's not great sound work, but this doesn't feel like the kind of sound work the Academy usually goes for. But I don't know. Now that we have one category instead of two, I, I don't know. No, I get that. I mean, but ask yourself this question. Let's say that a lot of these bubble contenders here don't pan out. Is this getting a lone production design nomination and nothing else? I genuinely could see it. Yeah. I would have to go back and see what lone production design nominees we've had recently and try to like make some comparisons between that. Because normally production design brings something else like costumes or cinematography with it, usually. But in this case, costumes and cinematography are two of the most crowded line categories to crack this year. Right. Yeah, and I agree with Nicole that while the work is definitely well done, I don't think compared to like a couple other contenders, like when we were also talking about cinematography, I don't really know if this takes a spot from like Macbeth or Dune or West Side Story or even like Power of the Dog. Like I think a lot of those films have really, you know, gotten their place in the conversation. And while this is really good, I don't know if it's done enough to supplant one of those. Any other final thoughts here on Nightmare Alley before we go? The thing that I do want to say, like I keep going back and forth on score because Nathan Johnson has not been welcomed into the club yet. Sure. And they tend to be the most insular. But if they are able to get him out there with the whole story, like he took over for Alexander Despot at the literal last minute and came out with something, I would be really interested to see how that branch responds to that narrative. Well, Dan, be on the lookout for my interview with him this week. <laughs> well, Matthew, <laughs> I will. And where will I be able to find that interview? Uh, you will be able to find it on the Next Best Picture podcast, which is a great segue for where everyone else can find all of you lovely people on the Internet. So, Nicole Ackman, tell everyone that's listening where they can find you on the Internet. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Nicole Ackman 16. Casey Lee Clark. You can find me on Twitter at Casey Lee Clark. Emma Sasek. You can find me on Twitter at Emma underscore Sasek and Letterbox at Emma Sasek. Zach Gilbert. You can find me on Twitter at Zach B. Gilbert and on Letterbox at Zach Gilbert. And Dan Bear. You can find me on Twitter at Dance and Dan on Film. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of Nightmare Alley here on the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. And if you want to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, please feel free to do so and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. Is he man or beast? <laughs> nah. <laughs> this was super fun, but I gotta bounce. Out, are ya? I'm <laughs> <laughs> like okay. the rest of the night like Willem Dafoe. Wow, I love this. Oh. All right. <laughs> Bye, all. Good night. Bye. 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 Bye, everyone. 
I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.